And repetition works to get our attention, doesn't it, parents? It does work. It's why at the end of every radio commercial, they repeat the phone number three times, right? Call 555-8255. That's 555-8255-555-8255. You're going to remember that number at the end of today. Ad executives know that repetition works. It gets your attention. It sticks in your mind. That's how we know. If we want the best car insurance rates in town, we call 1-800. There we go. Thank you. I know some of y'all were embarrassed, but you know the answer. Repetition is this literary device. It's been used for thousands of years to catch your attention. It denotes importance. It helps you to see and understand what is the message that's being conveyed. You say it over and over and over. In the Bible, we see that important themes are repeated over and over and over. So a topic like faith is talked about more than 500 times in the Bible. If you've been to a church, odds are you've heard that word. Prayer is another one uh, around a similar amount of times. 500 times prayer is talked about in scripture. But there is a topic that's talked about more than 2,000 times, four times the amount of faith or prayer that we talk much less about in church, and that is the topic of money. Ooh, I even feel a little... It's like I said, he who must not be named. It's like Voldemort at Harry Potter world. When you say that, you talk about money in church and it gets people's attention. And yet scripture is not shy to talk about it. It isn't. Jesus in 16 of his 38 parables talks about money. Almost 25% of Jesus' teaching touches on money in some way, shape, or form, which is really surprising and interesting. But what it means is if I was to emulate that, one out of every four Sunday sermons would be about this topic in some way. And yet it's something that we hesitate to talk about. We started this series, House of God, last week. And up on the screen, we, we put a graphic and we said that we're sort of going to build this house. And the question was, I felt God laid on my heart this idea that he's less concerned with the architecture of a building and he's more concerned with building a church that is healthy and strong that, than he is with the architecture, right? And so as I look through the New Testament, I picked out these four major themes we're going to talk about all throughout this month. And the first one last week was that in scripture, the church, the house of God is a house of diversity. It's a house where we see different people from different cultures that look very different, that have different experiences all together. It's a house of economic diversity as well. We have rich people and we have poor people and we have everybody in between is worshiping together. And we see that we had generational diversity as well, where you have young and old and everything in between. That's what the church should look like as I look at the New Testament. And today, we're going to talk about the second thing that I've noticed as I read through Acts and the epistles, what type of house is it? It's a house of generosity. The church that I see is a house of generosity. Now's the time I want to encourage you to pull out your notes Okay, pull out your notebooks if you've brought it. If you didn't bring your notebooks, bring a phone, pull that out, open up your notes app because we are going to take a lot of notes today. Small groups are starting back up. 
we're a church that worships in spirit and truth. So we're going to study what God's word has to say, and we're going to talk about how it applies to our lives in small groups. So make sure that you're taking our notes. Our anchor passage for today is found in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be reading starting in verse 19. And these are the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Here's his commandment to us. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And now here's the crucial part. Listen now. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want you to say that part with me. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is why Jesus doesn't want us to lay up treasures for ourselves here on earth. There's really two commandments in this passage that Jesus gives to us. The first commandment is in the negative. That's do not. The next commandment is in the positive. It says do. So if you're taking your notes today, I want you to write down the do not command first. Do not, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth. If Jesus Christ himself, God, the one who loves you and saves you, who created everything, who knows you, was standing up on this stage and he was looking at you, we have every reason to believe that a sermon that he would preach, he would look you in the eyes and he would say, hey, I love you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth. Instead, I want you to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't do it, Jesus says. When it comes to this idea of laying up treasures here on earth, why is it that God doesn't want us to do that? Well, he tells us. He says that things are temporary. Moths eat at it. Rust destroys it. Thieves can break in and steal it. Ultimately, the major point is this and this only. You can't take any of it with you when you die. I've heard an old preacher say it this way, you'll never find a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it. When you leave this life, somebody's going to clean out your garage and your basement. That's going to stay here and you're going to be gone. And Jesus says, do not get caught up in this game of accumulation. Buy more things and newer things and newer things and more things so that my life is taken up with stuff. But he also reminds us in verse 21 of the reason that we don't do this. And this is what Jesus always does. He gets to the heart of the matter. And he says in verse 21 that you're not to lay up treasures for yourself here on earth because wherever your treasures are, there your heart is going to be. And God's concerned with our heart, isn't he? God is concerned with the inner man. All the way back in the Old Testament, as Samuel is looking for the king that God wants to anoint over Israel, he says, hey, ignore the outward appearance for the Lord looks at the heart. And so for us, somehow our possessions, our things, the stuff that we accumulate and we focus on and we work hard to buy, Jesus knows that it will have this tendency to try to take over the throne of your heart. And I can see that that's true. I can see it in my own life that that's true. And so I get wrapped up in my things and in my possessions. 
and I get wrapped up trying to take care of them and I get anxious about it. I, I, I think the best example is a car. When I drove here to plant this church with, with Jera to be a part of this, I drove in a 1990 Honda Accord, burgundy stick shift, no airbags or anti-lock brakes, but I love that thing. Now, we planted in 2010, so it was already 20 years old, 200,000 plus miles on it, but it was my car. I bought it with my own money. It was the first, the first thing that I did that with. Well, I was a football coach here when I first moved, and I was coaching at Central Crossing High School. I was coaching a kicker, and that's not that funny, just saying, Eunice, but uh, I was coaching a kicker, and... I pulled into the parking lot, and this young man, 17, 18 years old, he pulled in right next to me. And as he pulled in, he just scraped the front of his car all the way down the driver's side of my 1990 Accord. And you could see his eyes just getting gradually bigger as he realizes what he's doing. And about halfway through the process, he's just like, well, I'm already here. And he just sort of guns it right through, you know? And he got out of his car just freaked out. And he says, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just did that. And genuinely for me, it was like, hey man, I, you just pinstriped my car for me. It's all right. It's no big deal. That was our creative director, Luke Carmichael, by the way, if you guys see him, maybe park far away. But I've been thinking about getting a new car recently. My car is a 2005 now. I've been thinking about it for a long time. And I noticed that people with nice cars tend to park really far away in the back of Kroger's parking lot with lots of space around them. I've never once had to think about that. They don't want their car to get dinged or scratched or dented. My cars have always come pre-dinged and scratched and dented, so I've never thought about it. But that just perfectly illustrates how our, our things, when the nicer and the more, the more you get anxious about it and you spend money to maintain it and you got to work harder so that you can make the payment on it. And, and it slowly begins to go to this place where instead of you having nice things, nice things tend to have you. And Jesus says, don't play that game. But then he goes in the affirmative and he says, do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And for the same reason that we don't want to lay up treasures here on earth, we can't take them with us when we die. We do want to lay up treasures in heaven. He says up there in heaven, moths aren't going to eat at it. Thieves aren't going to steal it. Rust won't destroy it. It's permanent. You get to enjoy it for all of eternity. Now, how do we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? That is a whole nother sermon. That's a long conversation, but ultimately it looks like following after Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. You're sharing your faith. You're giving to those who are in need. You are being humble and kind and, and listening to what the Holy Spirit says. And when we follow Christ, we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. But there is a passage that we're going to go up through today that catches my eye when I look through the New Testament, which says that when we are generous with our giving, we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And so that's what we're going to focus on, this idea of giving. The Bible all throughout talks about money. I shared that with you over 2,000 times. And we can't do another whole sermon on what the Old Testament says about giving and the New Testament says about giving. But here's the overview. In the Old Testament, there was this concept of a tithe. 
A tithe simply means 10%. And there were different tithes that the people of Israel had to give. They were commanded by God. They had to give these tithes. And one of those, one-tenth of their income was meant to go to support worship in Israel. It went to the Levites, the ones who took care of temple worship, and they maintained the church or the temple, and they performed the sacrifices, and it supported their families because they couldn't work regular jobs. They were meant to support the worship. Now, there is a big controversy in Christian circles of whether or not the tithe is still something that God wants us to do in the New Testament. And we can't get into that controversy, but what I do want to tell you is that for me and my family, I'm going to speak personally here, the tithe is where we start when it comes to giving. The tithe is where we start when it comes to giving, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but the major reason is simply this, this is my church. I'm not just the pastor here. This is my family's primary spiritual influence outside the home is here. It's you guys. And when I'm not preaching, I'm sitting here taking notes while Dylan or Sean or a guest preaches. And my kids are in kids ministry and me and Jarrah are in small groups and she serves at kids check-in and we help set up and tear down and we go on the mission trips, right? And we go and we serve at the outreach. This is my church and so I'm gonna support it. And a tithe is how we do that. So why? Why is it that I tithe? Let's go through these scriptures together. Why is it that I tithe? I'm going to give you five different reasons why me and Jarrah choose to begin by tithing. The first one is simply this. When I tithe, I'm following the example of much of Scripture. I've already told you that in the Old Testament, that was what we did, but also it carries on into the New Testament, at least some. In Matthew 23, 23, here's the Scripture that, that, that really convicted me when I was young. Jesus is talking to these really ultra-religious people, these Pharisees and these scribes, and he's not happy with them. And here's what he says in Matthew 23, 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That is not a good start. He says, you tithe on your mint and your dill and your cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Okay, that's still not a good start, but here's what's happening. They are going out to their herb gardens and making sure that they tithe 10% of their herbs to the temple. They're being diligent about following this tithe to the letter of the law. And Jesus says, but you've neglected these weightier matters, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And does Jesus go and does he say, you should have done that instead of tithe? No. What he says instead is these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's not either or, it's both. And as I look at life, like I, in the same way that I, I can't feel comfortable neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness, I can't feel comfortable neglecting the support of the church. And so that's one of the reasons why we tithe. The second reason why we tithe, I'm convicted by this, and I know that this might be something that we need to have some conversations in small groups about, but I believe that I am blessed by God when I give. I believe it. I believe that scripture supports that. Now, I think that that has been taken advantage of by some unscrupulous people, but it's, it is supported by scripture in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God says this to the people of Israel, bring your full tithe into the storehouse so that there might be food in my house. His house being 
the tabernacle, the temple. He says, bring the full tithe in and thereby put me to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God promised the people of Israel that if they would honor him with the very first of their finances, that he would pour down blessing upon them in their life. And if you look at Luke chapter 6, that's not just an Old Testament principle. In Luke 6, verse 38, we read this. This is Jesus again saying, he is saying, give and it will be given back to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, that will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Within scripture, in, the, in that passage is about both forgiveness and giving, Okay. If you forgive much, you're forgiven much. If you give much, you're blessed. And that, it's not like a cosmic slot machine, all right? It's not put in 20 bucks and get 40 out. God doesn't operate like that, but he does operate on these principles that when we honor him first, we're blessed. And I can attest in my own life that I have seen the truth of that. The third reason why me and Jera have chose to start with tithing is that I'm participating in the spread of the gospel when I tithe. When I tithe, I'm participating in the spread of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, this is what the Apostle Paul tells the churches. He says, Don't you know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar, they share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I believe that when I tithe, I'm supporting the proclamation of the gospel. And I just want to talk practically now. This theater that we rent, the salaries that we pay for me and Sean and Dylan and Luke and Allie and AJ and Jackie, those things are not possible unless we have people within our church that regularly are committed to giving. Nobody's going to enter into a contract with us as a church to proclaim the gospel, to meet together, if we're saying, hey, we hope people might give this month. If instead we can say, hey, yes, we have a committed group of people who will support this church. And Paul says that when someone is faithful to proclaim the gospel, it is your job who benefit from this proclamation to support those who do it. And when all of us contribute, and when all of us are faithful to do that, that makes that possible. And it's not just in support of us, it's missionaries who we commit to monthly to go out on the field. It's new churches that we commit to to start. It's outreach ministries. It's feeding those who are hungry. It is clothing those who need clothing. If we don't have people who are committed to the idea of tithing so that we can count on and budget our resources, we can't support those things. And I want to just tell you, this is not something that we waited until we were in our 30s to start doing. Young people, when I started this church, my salary was $5,000 a year. When I was a part of this church, and me and Jared committed in our hearts that the first $500 that we made would go back to the Lord. 
for all the reasons that I outlined, but there's even more, two more reasons. And I think for me, these are the ones that really, these are the ones that convict me more than any. Reason number four is that when I tithe, I choose to admit my dependence upon God. And as I've said before, these are the heart issues that we're talking about, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read this passage in verse 17 and a little bit of 18. And this is what we read. Beware. This is a warning. Beware. Lest you say in your heart, my power, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You see, when I choose to give to God the very first fruits, what I'm doing is I am recognizing that even my ability to earn a paycheck comes from my Father in heaven. That everything that I have, everything that is quote-unquote mine is really not mine, but that I'm a steward of what God has given me. And you might think God never gave me a thing. And what this passage reminds you is that God gave you the ability to work. And that's a hard issue, isn't it? Because in my pride, that Deuteronomy talks about pride there. That's a pride thing. By the might of my hand, I have earned this wealth. And God is reminding us that you have no might in your hand without me. And so when I give back to God first, it sets my heart up in the right place so that I'm admitting my dependence upon him. And that's really, really important. But the last thing is taking us full circle all the way back to Matthew 6. It forces me monthly to check on the state of my heart. Man, there is always more stuff and less money, at least in the Palmer household. There's more stuff that I want than there is money to buy it. And I could always use a couple more bucks. I could always use that bonus, man. If I found a hundred bucks on the ground, I'm not throwing it away, you know? And so when I choose monthly to look at our paycheck, and my, my paycheck is really settled, okay? It's a salary. But my wife, she's a realtor. She's fantastic. But some months she sells a house and some months she doesn't. And so at the end of every month, we look at what God brought in and we multiply it by 10% and we give it back to the church. That's our, every month we do this. And when I choose to write that check, there is a little bit of me that, it, that is forced to check on my own heart to make sure once again that I'm putting Jesus in his rightful place, that I haven't allowed myself to fall in love with things or that next thing that I want to buy, that I'm choosing to make him the Lord and to be obedient in that. Does this make sense? These are the reasons that for us, for me and Jared, we have chosen to begin with a tithe. That is the baseline level of our obedience. And, and listen, I, I think that what it does in us when we tithe is it builds a giving muscle. I think that giving is a muscle that has to be built just like every other muscle. I hear all the time, and it's really from well-meaning people that I, I love, and I, this is not to you know, jump on them at all, but I hear all the time, man, I played that Powerball. And if I win, I'm going to build that church for y'all. 
And I think to myself, okay, like I believe you, but I, I really think you'll probably do exactly whatever you do now. Because the truth is, if you don't give a dollar when you've got 10, why would I expect you give $100,000 when you got a million? It's a muscle that we build. You build it when you're young. You build it with your first job. You start to build it with your, with your you know, entry-level position. You build it when you get that bonus. And you're thinking about that thing you'd rather buy. And when you write that extra check to the Lord, you're building this muscle. And in Luke chapter 16, what Jesus tells us is that those who are faithful with a little bit are going to be faithful with a lot. And those who are unfaithful with a little bit, guess what? They're unfaithful when they have a lot. And so it's not a matter of how much. Church, it's a matter of our hearts and our obedience. And that's what God is after. This is not about what God needs from you. This is about God who is not. This is not God's strategy to raise money. This is God's strategy to raise his children. But honestly, when we started this sermon, I didn't put up on there that the house of God is a house of tithing, did I? Because I think that in the New Testament, the, the law is abolished. Whether or not we are righteous before God no longer depends upon whether or not I tithe or whether or not I you know, perform this or do that. Jesus Christ has forgiven all of our sins. The only way in which we are made right before God himself, God Almighty, is through the blood of Jesus Christ by giving our lives over to him by Jesus substituting himself in our place, by following after Christ, that's how it happens. And so we're no longer under this Old Testament law. Instead, we're under a new standard. But I'm convicted that that standard isn't less. Instead, it's more. And I think that that's what we see in the New Testament, that the new standard is radical generosity. And so now I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about why me and my wife do more than tithe on a monthly basis. Because the new standard is radical generosity. Why is it that we do more than tithe? Well, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we see the church. The church is operating just in a whole different way than it's ever operated before. You've got these thousands of people. You've got rich, poor, different cultures, different ages, everything. And, and there is this incredible way in which the church is caring for one another. And it's like a modern day example would be, you see this over and over in Acts, a modern day example would be like, oh, this single mom's car broke down. She can't afford it. You know what? I've actually got an extra car. It's yours. Take it. Oh man, there was this family with this unexpected medical bills and it is putting them in crazy debt. And you know what? Hey, there's this other person over here. You know what? I've got this piece of land that I inherited. I don't really need it. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to pay off your debt so that you can be free from that. You don't have to worry about that anymore. That's how we're seeing the church operate in Acts. And it's this beautiful picture and it's this different standard than anything that we have seen before. And we see sort of the Apostle Paul try to quantify this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you guys are looking on the screen, there's this new passage. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. And God is, 
God is talking through the apostle Paul about the new standard for how we should look at our finances. And here's what he says. He says in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, I charge them, don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of that riches, but instead on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And here's what you're supposed to do. Do good. Be rich, but in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share thus storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The Apostle Paul says that here is how you lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. Be rich in good works. Be generous with all that you have. Be ready to share. And as you do that, you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and you start to do, God starts to do surgery on your heart so that you begin to actually take hold of that which is truly life. I know that you think that that new car will bring you life, but it doesn't. I know that you think that that boat brings you life. It doesn't. What instead Paul says, God says to us will bring us actual life is to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven to do things the way that God commands us to do them. And now you might be looking at this and saying, hey, I know this loophole because that says it's for rich people and I'm not rich. I want you to write this down. I am rich. I know that sounds funny to say and for a lot of you guys that you're like shaking as you type it, write it down, you're rich. If you drove here in a car, if you own a cell phone, if you slept last night in an air-conditioned house, if you have internet access, you are probably the top one-tenth of a percent in the world for your wealth. You're rich. And this commandment is for you. Don't store up your treasures on earth. Instead, be generous. There's a new standard that we see that goes well beyond this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 9, rather, in verses 6 through 8, we see this. The point is this, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is the new standard for us. God loves it. He loves it when we're cheerful givers. Why is it that we feel convicted to give over and above our tithes every single month? Why is it that we look for opportunities to bless those, to help those who are in need? Why is it that we set aside in our budget every month money to go beyond the tithe, to look for opportunities to be radically generous? Number one, it's because I'm rich. And number two, it's because God loves it. And I'm a cheerful giver when I remember all that God has done for me. Has God been good to you? Man, has God saved you from your sin? Has God given you a new life? Has he put a new heartbeat in your chest? Has God given you all that you need in this life to survive? Has God blessed you with more than you need? Has God given you over and above all that you could have expected or thought or imagined? Of course he has. Examine your life. Of course God has. And now what he asks for us is to be generous in return. And God loves that. And I, wanna, I want him. I want him to love what I do with my life. I don't want him to look at me and be like, oh, there goes David storing up treasures on earth again. 
I want him to look at my life and be like, oh, I love that guy. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. He's going to have an empty basement and an empty garage when he goes. Man, that's the life I want to live. God loves a cheerful giver. And here's the thing. I know that sometimes when you listen to sermons like this, it can be discouraging instead of encouraging because you know your own financial situation. And so you hear things like, hey, we need this for the building. Can you please give for the building? We, we really need the building. You know we need it, but you got nothing to give. Or you know a friend or you see a GoFundMe and you're like, man, I wish I could help that person out, but you've got nothing, got nothing. I listened to this John MacArthur teaching. It's so good, um, but we'll just sum it up with this. Uh, I need financial margin if I'm going to be radically generous. I can't actually give away what I don't have. There's an episode of The Office, the most cringy episode ever. Do, does anybody like The Office in here? All right, a couple of people will get this reference. Where Michael Scott, he, he chooses to give college scholarships to a bunch of elementary school students if they can graduate from high school which is incredibly generous. The only problem is he doesn't have enough money to do that. We would like to be generous, but if we don't actually have enough money to do that, we can't give what we don't have. And so this is the part that's, I mean, watch your toes now, okay? I'm going to be stepping. Here's the truth. You're commanded to be radically generous by God. That's a command. And so if your house payment and your car payment and your boat payment and these, all these things make it so that you can't actually be radically generous, then you can't actually afford that house, car, and boat. You can't, and please God, you can't do that. I get that the car payment, that 900 bucks a month on a 12-year loan might fit into your budget, but the question you got to ask is, do you want GM Financial to be the Lord of your life or Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Because you've chosen one. If you can't do that and be, I mean, we're not even talking about obedience. We're talking about radical generosity. If you have lived your life in such a way, and the only way to find this out is to take an honest look at your life and to have some honest conversations. I'm not getting up in your business. That's between you and God. But I want God to look at your life and be like, oh, I love that couple. Man, they've got their hearts right. I love it. And so I'm going to ask you, if you're married, uh, have this conversation with your spouse on the way home. If you're single, you and God need to have this conversation. I'm going to give you four questions that I want you to ask each other this week. Number one, the number one question I want you to ask is, am I being radically generous with our finances? That's between you and the Holy Spirit. This is no longer a commandment in the way, same way in the Old Testament. God will love you. God does love you. But this is between you and the Holy Spirit. Are you being radically generous with your finances? The second question that I want you to ask is this. Do we have enough financial margin in our lives that allows us to meet the needs of other people? Do I have enough financial margin that I can jump in and meet the needs of other people? And guess what? That's going to mean sacrifice on your part. It means sacrifice. That's, there's no way around it. It means you don't buy all the things you want to buy. Instead, you're choosing a different thing, which is to have enough money to help others. The third question I want you to ask is, where is it that we are storing up our treasures? Remember, God's after your heart. 
Where is it that you're storing up your treasures? What does that look like? And then the final question, and maybe the most important question is this one. How is it that we move forward from here? Because it's one thing to sit in a seat and to hear a sermon and to look at these scriptures and to know, and it's another thing to feel like you can get yourself untangled from this web that you find yourself in to a place where you feel as though you can actually be obedient to God, where he's going to love the way that you give. Those are two different things. And I don't want to leave you without hope. We've said that we, we want each and every week this month in some way, shape, or form, we want to give you an opportunity to take the conviction that you feel and take positive steps. And so sometimes I, I would just say with finances, sometimes you need help. You need people that have some expertise. You need people that have a plan. And so we looked at that question. I looked at that question. The eldership team looked at this question. What we did was on the app right now, if you, if you open up your app, you can pull this out. There is a button that says Ramsey Plus on it. It's the same thing on our website, covenantchurch.us forward slash resources. Now, Ramsey Plus is a financial counseling from a Christian point of view. And they have all sorts of experts and videos and classes that you can take. And they have the best budgeting software I've ever seen. And, and if you find yourself in a place where you're just sort of sick and tired of not being able to help other people in need because your finances and you need a plan and you need help, what we did is we paid as a church for a one-year subscription of Ramsey Plus for 500 families. Now, I want you to do one per family, all right? Husband and wife both don't need to sign up. But this is a, it's like 130 bucks a year. But we want you so badly to get to a place where you can actually be obedient in this way that we as a church have paid for you guys to be able to jump in. You'll get that budgeting software. You're going to get access to experts and accountability. There's articles, there's videos, there's advice. And crucially, there's a class that me and my wife took that changed our life. It's called Financial Peace University. And because of this class, it's a nine-week course. It got us out of debt. It got us on a plan. It allowed us to budget. And it allowed us to get to a place where I can talk about these things, not from a place of hypocrisy, but from a place where it's genuine in my life. I mean this. I've been there and now I've been freed. And free is better. Financial Peace University, we've paid for that as well. Any family that wants to be in it, we're going to we're going to have a class that we start next month. We might have to open up two classes depending on what people do for signups. But on the website and on the app, both of those things are available to you. Remember, we want to be a church that looks different than the community around us. We want to be a place that sticks out like a purple house on a street of black and tan and white and gray. And one of the ways we have to do that is we have to get our hearts right when it comes to this thing, this money. We have to store up our treasures in heaven. And it doesn't matter what kind of building we have. If we move a church in there that doesn't look like that, it's just not going to matter, guys. Would you just pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the freedom that we have first in Christ, that you have freed us from the law. But Lord, I also, I know my heart. I know my needs. I know that before you, God, I, I just, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. I know that there are families in here that will be having tough conversations today. Lord, they need you. 
Convict us, draw us to yourself, Lord. May we live lives that, that you love, Lord, that you love. May we store up treasures, not here on earth, but instead in heaven. And God, may this church become a place of radical generosity that meets the needs of those around us. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.